Well, tonight we begin an exposition of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Before we begin, I should say a little bit about what it actually is. What is the Westminster Shorter Catechism? The Westminster Shorter Catechism is one of the documents that make up the Westminster Standards. And they are the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. For Presbyterians, they form our statement of faith. These standards were first published in 1646 and 1647. So anything that we read here was not invented yesterday. These are, these are old and historic documents, but they are as fresh as they ever could be. They are a product of the English Reformation. And in those days, uh, what is known as the Long Parliament in England commissioned over a hundred of the godliest and most theologically informed clergy from England and Scotland to assemble at Westminster to reform the Church of England's 39 Articles. So actually the original reason that these guys were formulated together was to revise the Church of England's 39 Articles, which is the statement of faith, and it still is today, of the Church of England. But what actually happened was an entirely brand new confession of faith. They created something brand new. And for the English-speaking world, the Westminster Standards represent the full bloom of the English Reformation. It became the most widely influential theological document to come out of the English Reformation. So, for example, both the Baptists as well as the Independent Congregationalists used the Westminster Confession of Faith as the foundational document for their own confessions. So the Baptist, Second London Baptist Confession, as well as the Congregationalist Savoy Declaration, are both basically the Westminster Confession of Faith with a few little changes here and there regarding baptism and church government. Otherwise, in most places, it is, it is word for word the Westminster Confession of Faith. So both the Baptists and the Congregationalists from this era stand lockstep with the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition on the doctrine of God and salvation. They stand lockstep at this time. And on a personal note, the Westminster Shorter Catechism represents my own introduction to Presbyterianism. I came across the standards as a seminary student back in seminary in Chicago, and long before I myself became a Presbyterian, my wife and I were already using the Shorter Catechism to teach our children and we found ourselves growing by leaps and bounds as we memorized it too. In fact, I learned many things from the catechism that I was never once taught in seminary. So here you go. If you want a seminary education, we can start right in here with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And until modern times when modern men thought they knew better, Children learn new ideas through rote memorization. That knowledge equipped young people with the building blocks for understanding logic 
and how to implement that knowledge in practical ways when they became adults. And without those basic building blocks, modern man becomes enslaved to specialists. Thus, modern man, as people like C.S. Lewis have noted, is enslaved to the conditioners that rule them. Education becomes about telling you what to know or what to believe rather than about how to learn. Without those basic building blocks, we become mentally weak and flimsy. and We don't have buckets or categories. We're not equipped to be able to understand great ideas. So the same problem has happened to the church. Theology tends to become watered down and minimized. Rather than be stretched to grow in your knowledge of God and redemption, you hear the same old tropes and cliches bandied about at church. If you raise serious theological ideas or questions, you are treated as a troublemaker or worse, divisive. So the Westminster Standards give us a basic framework for understanding God and his word. And it really becomes the foundation for exploring the themes of God that you might not otherwise ever hear about. The Shorter Catechism is particularly helpful as a starting point. So my challenge to you is this. Commit yourself to a careful study of its teaching and the Bible references that ground its statements, and you will find that you have been given tools and categories for understanding God and his universe in ways that you never thought possible. It certainly did for me. But in the final analysis, the power and usefulness of the Westminster Standards is not rooted in its history, it's not rooted in its tradition, but because it is rooted in the Word of God. In fact, in my opinion, it is the most robust and articulate expression of biblical theology that has ever been penned by the hand of men. Now that is a really big statement, but I believe that it is true. Let me say that again. I believe that the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Standards as a whole, is the most robust and articulate expression of biblical theology that has ever been penned by the hand of man. In other words, you look at all of the theological statements that have been written about God and written based on the Bible, and there are some great ones. We have, we have the historic creeds and confessions, Right? We've got the Apostles' Creed. We've got the Nicene Creeds. Those are incredibly foundational to Christianity. But they're also brief. They're dealing with one subject. But when you look at all of the broad statements of faith about God and about what the Bible teaches, in my opinion, there is no greater, more robust, more biblically faithful statement 
than the Westminster Standards. But you'll have to read that for yourself to see if that is true. So leaving that statement aside, regardless of what you believe, if you want to know what a Presbyterian believes, at least an evangelical Presbyterian, the Shorter Catechism is the place to start. And tonight we get right to the heart of it with the question, what is the chief end of man? Basically, what is everything about? So we begin now with question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, and talk about the heartbeat of Presbyterianism. I want to talk about the heartbeat of Presbyterianism. The single most important life-shaping driver in your life is something that most people never think about. There is actually something very powerful in you that drives virtually every decision that you make. Your preferences, your tastes, your life choices are totally informed and defined by it. And for most people, this driver is completely subconscious. So what is it? The most powerful driver in your life is what you believe about the meaning of your existence. The most powerful driver in your life is what you believe about the meaning of your existence. You may not have ever seriously considered the idea. What is the good life? What gives meaning to your life? What could you never live without? What must you do or what must you have to be happy? Your answer to these questions directs your life, whether you have an articulately formed opinion about it or not. It's the foundation of what we might call your core beliefs. Your core beliefs. And it's the heartbeat that drives you. And if you want to know what the heartbeat of Presbyterianism is, that is the theological distinctive that drives our mission, that shapes the way we think about everything, that is the reason why we are here today in Norway, the theological distinctive that drives all of that, if you want to know what that is for a Presbyterian, you would be hard-pressed to find a better summary of it than question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question one defines the heartbeat of the Presbyterian faith and the Christian life as we know it. And question one states and asks, what is the chief end of man? What is the ultimate purpose of you and me and every person that's ever been on this planet. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, I see my kids raising their hands. Say it with me, guys. Man's chief end to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
the heartbeat of Presbyterianism is the indivisible link between the glory of God and the joy of his people. It's this inseparable link. These two things go together, the glory of God and the joy of God's people. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We see this indivisible link most clearly in question one. And here's the big idea for the night. When we do all things for God's glory, we also find that glorifying God becomes our greatest joy. Let me say that again. When we do all things for God's glory, we also find that glorifying God becomes our greatest and highest joy. So let's look at this. Man's chief end is to glorify God. God is the chief and highest being, not man. God is the chief and highest being, not man. The Bible could not be more clear on this point. The phrase, I am the Lord, echoes 184 times in the Old Testament. God is the great I am. He reigns supreme over all princes and powers. He reigns supreme over all false gods and idols. He says in Isaiah, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. God is supreme over creation and providence. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Isaiah 45, 4, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Colossians 1, 16, all things were made through him and for him. God is supreme over salvation too. He says, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. It is God who gives us a heart to know him. In Ephesians we learn that we are spiritually dead and it is God who makes us alive. Disciples do not choose him. He chooses his disciples. Remember Jesus' words to the disciples. You did not choose me. I chose you. John 15, 16. And Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 and 11. And he chose us before the foundation of the world. So God reigns supreme over creation and providence. He has made all things. He orchestrates all things. Both he makes well-being and creates calamity, Isaiah 45, 4. He's the one who forms light and creates darkness. And he is also Lord over salvation. 
So when we open the Bible and read it from Genesis to Revelation, the dominant theme of all of Scripture is the supremacy of God over all things. The supremacy of God over all things. Creation, providence, and salvation. So in summary fashion, we can say with the Apostle Paul, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty six. So beloved, we were created for God's glory and pleasure. God's chief and highest concern is his own glory. Not the pleasure of man. In the book of Revelation, the elders cry out, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He made us and redeemed us so that we would glorify his name, so that we would make him great and not ourselves. The chief mark of our lives is thus stated in Paul's letter to Corinth, which we read in our scripture reading tonight, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Now we need to make another point here. That means that man's chief end is not man. Man's chief end is not man. The Bible is so clear. The entire creation exists for the pleasure and the glory of God. Because all things were made through him and for him, we exist for his pleasure and therefore the chief end of man is not man god is the main thing he is the main thing in life and he must be the main thing in ministry put anything else at the center and spiritual disaster will follow so let me explain that point the late British missiologist Leslie Newbingen, returning to England, observed that the whole emphasis of the evangelical faith in England was starting to slip. Ask evangelicals today, what is the most important mission of the church? The vast majority would tell you the salvation of man. Let me say that again. Ask evangelicals today, what is the most important mission of the church? And the vast majority would say, to save as many people as you can. That emphasis is a huge problem. And that is exactly what Newbigin saw as a missionary returning to England. 
And this is decades ago. The problem has only gotten worse. Here's what he said. He said, I suddenly saw that someone could use all the language of evangelical Christianity, and yet the center was fundamentally the self, my need of salvation, and God is auxiliary to that. I also saw that quite a lot of evangelical Christianity can easily slip and become centered in me and my need of salvation, and not in the glory of God. So this is a problem that Nubian saw decades ago in the 20th century. And this problem is only getting worse today. The most significant problem that plagues the evangelical church today is not cultural hostility to biblical morality. It is not secularism. It is not even materialism. The most significant problem facing the evangelical church today is the almost exclusive focus on man's need of salvation and not the glory of God. When man becomes the center, everything changes. The Bible becomes a self-help manual. The church becomes a therapy center. Worship becomes entertainment. Pastors become CEOs or customer service representatives. Doctrine is minimized to offend as little as possible. Leaders make decisions based on what is pragmatic. The chief goal becomes not what will bring most glory to God, But how do you get as many people into the church as possible by any means necessary? When man becomes the center, the church becomes an idol factory. Man is at the center. God is far out at the edge. The relevancy of God, the relevancy of the whole Bible the subject of sermons and the mission of the church are all judged by what is deemed to be culturally relevant or helpful to a person's felt needs. Biblical Christianity is out. Pop culture religion is in. And I've seen too many people as a pastor come to church thinking that they are a Christian And they leave just as quickly when their own needs aren't met. Like a big revolving door. They're there as long as their needs are met. And as soon as there's problems or it doesn't work for them, they're gone. They came not to glorify God. They came not to serve the body of Christ. They wanted church to be about them. And unfortunately, too many churches enable this kind of self-centered version of the faith that is deceiving and spiritually lethal. In some cases, entire churches are filled with people who are there because the pastor promises to build their own kingdom. 
This pastor will help me make more money. This pastor will help me be more successful in business. This pastor makes me feel better about myself. This pastor will fix my marriage. This pastor will heal me. Worldly churches give the world what it wants. The whole focus is man getting what it wants. And it is as deadly as poison and it is leading millions astray from true biblical faith. So whatever tradition you identify with, we must stick a dagger in man-centered Christianity. For that is no true Christianity at all. Now, yes, man's needs, man's salvation is incredibly important to God. He sent his only son into the world to save lost sinners. But even that was for a higher purpose, to bring glory to God. So if we don't take theology all the way to the top, we start going off course. If we, take, if we say the ultimate thing in, in theology is to save man, we're not taking it all the way to the top. And just like a mariner at sea who sets his compass, if he's off even by one degree, he's ending up thousands of miles off course. So we need theology that covers man's needs and man's salvations as biblically faithful as we can, but we need to take theology all the way up to the top. And that, in my opinion, is the chief distinctive of the Presbyterian faith. It begins with this notion that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I... Hope, and I think that most Christians, if you said we should live for the glory of God, they would say yes. But when you look at what is emphasized in the services and what's emphasized in the theology in the sermons, you will notice the center is by and large almost entirely focused on man and what man needs. But what man needs most is the glory of God. So we need to go all the way up to the top. So let's look at what I talked about at the beginning, this indivisible link now between God's glory and what is actually man's highest need. I want to look at how Glorifying God actually becomes the greatest need that we have, as well as our greatest joy. So let me say that again. When we live for God's glory, we don't simply find our greatest need. We also find our greatest joy. We don't simply find our greatest need. We also find our greatest joy. So let's look at how God's glory is our greatest joy. Man's obsession is the pursuit of happiness. You know, as an American, it's, right, it's built into your DNA 
as an American, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it's not just Americans that are pursuing happiness. It's not just Norwegians that are pursuing happiness. Everybody, it's built into the DNA of man to pursue what makes them happy. Even the person who commits suicide is doing so to find a better outcome to their situation. Everybody is pursuing happiness. So it's the search for the good life. Philosophers have been debating that question since the beginning. Human culture is hell-bent on finding pleasure. You hear phrases tossed around like, as long as it makes you happy. Whatever floats your boat. To each his own. The supreme cultural moral value is that if it makes you feel good, it is good. And human culture is hell-bent on finding what feels good. Now, the pursuit of happiness is not in itself bad. It is not in itself bad. But the pursuit of earthly pleasure is a fool's quest. The pursuit of earthly pleasure is a fool's quest. No earthly thing, whatever that may be, whether it's health or wealth or relationships, will ever bring you lasting joy. It will fail you every time. And if every person in this room is honest, we have all tried it. We have all tried to find happiness in that person or that thing or that experience. And it fails us every time. We might have some momentary satisfaction, but it ends up wearing out. The relationship is going to lose some of the flame. The toy no longer satisfies. The movie gets tired. And ever and anon, man looks for more joy, more pleasure, more happiness. Like a crack cocaine addict. We are looking for more and more. And the more you try to find it, the less pleasure it gives you. Until you come to the brink of nothingness. The house becomes bigger, the car faster, vacations more exotic, but it never works. And the wise man discovers, like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All is vanity and a striving after the wind. The greatest wealth on the planet is just It's wind. You cannot hold on to it. You can't keep it. It's a vapor that vanishes. Earthly pleasures do not last. They will always leave us wanting more. And like Citizen Kane, the Xanadu, which you devoted your whole life to building, becomes an empty memorial to your own unhappiness. If you don't know what Xanadu is, you have to watch the movie. The man who has everything soon finds the meaninglessness of it all. And the reason why is that man has mistaken the gift for the giver. 
Man has mistaken the gift for the giver. God is the source of all joy. And only in his presence do we find lasting pleasure. The psalmist writes, Psalm 1611, one of the most important verses in the entire Bible about the chief end of man and where we will find lasting pleasure. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the pleasure that we get from food and nature and relationships and experiences and things are all calling us to look beyond themselves, not at them, but beyond themselves to the one who gives them to us. This earth is wonderful because God made it, but it is folly to think that we can enjoy the earth without enjoying the one who made it. And so tragically, mankind wastes its life away making mud pies in the sand when a holiday at sea awaits them. We need to search for greater pleasure than what the world can offer. The world's desires for pleasure is actually not too strong, but it's too weak. It's not too strong it's too weak. The promises of God are so much greater than that. And C.S. Lewis writes as much when he says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So how do we glorify God and enjoy him forever? How do we do it? Well, God is the main thing, and only God can bring you lasting pleasure. I sincerely hope that you weigh your current core beliefs with the testimony of Scripture and think carefully about what really matters in your life. If you really want to find real pleasure in your life, you will only find it in the glory of God. If you want to live for what truly matters, live for the glory of God. I hope that you can learn to say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Beloved, we exist to glorify God. And it is in glorifying God that we find our greatest pleasure. And that is the heartbeat of the Presbyterian faith. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So the question then becomes, how do we glorify God and enjoy Him forever? What does glorifying God look like? That is a great question and one for which we will turn to next week when we unpack question two.